From WFPL, this is Unbound, fiction on the radio. I'm Erin Keene. In each episode, we'll hear stories on a theme from two different writers. On today's episode, we're going behind the front lines in the war at home. In our first story, a young boy in eastern Kentucky writes to his pen pal, an Indian immigrant living in Manhattan, about life in the mountains during the 2008 elections. This is Silas House reading a chapter from Same Sun Here. 4th November, 2008. Dear Mina, we are out of school for election day, but I had to get up early anyway because Mama wanted me to go with her to the voting booth this morning. She says, it's important for me to understand how lucky we are to be able to vote. She votes at the fire station, and even though it was cold and gray and drizzly, there was a long, 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 long line of people waiting to vote. Mama says she can't remember ever seeing so many people turn out. It's because people feel so strongly about this election, with lots of them for Palin and some of them real big on Obama. I wasn't allowed to go inside with Mama when she voted, so I stood there and studied everybody, and I thought it was really cool that people would stand in the rain to make their voices be heard. It made me want to be old enough to vote. When she came out, Mama nodded and smiled to the rest of the people in line, but then this man I'd never seen before He had a big, bushy beard, and his mouth was real small and red. He hollered and said, I bet you enjoyed pulling that lever, didn't you, tree hugger? You bet I did, Mamma said. Some of the people in line laughed, but most of them kept their eyes on the ground. I felt like I should defend Mamma, but I didn't know what to do. So I just gave him the dirtiest look I could muster up. He laughed at me, which caused his little red mouth to spread out and show his ugly teeth. I was so mad I couldn't stand it, but when we got in the car, Mamma told me to let it go. He's just stupid, honey. Ignorant people don't know any better, but stupid people, they want to be stupid. So just forget it. On our way home, we stopped at the grocery store so Mamma could pick up a few things. As soon as we got to the Piggly Wiggly, there was Dr. Patel and his wife. Dr. Patel started laughing and threw out his arms for a hug and said, Mama Justice, and Mamma hugged him and they talked like no one else existed. His wife leaned over just a bit and smiled at me. Hello, young man, she said. Mina, meeting you in these letters gave me the courage to talk to her, so I said hello. Used to, I would have been afraid to talk to anybody that looked like her. And then I asked her what her name was. It's Chandra. What does that mean? She told me I should call her that and not Mrs. Patel. Then I told her that I had a pen pal from the mountains of India who now lived in New York City, and she seemed real pleased by that. She asked which mountains, but I'm sorry I can't remember the name, so I just said, the ones that look like these. And she laughed a little and said she was from Ahmedabad. I had to ask her to repeat it a couple of times, and finally she said, here, and held out her palm and wrote it there with a blue ink pen so I could see. I told her I wanted to be sure to tell you where she was from, and so she wrote it on my palm too, holding onto my fingers with her other hand. Her skin was very warm, and she smiled the whole time she wrote it. 
She was leaning down close to my face, so I got to stare at her bindi real close. You were right, too, because hers is made of felt, just like your mother's. Mama was finally finished laughing with Dr. Patel, and so Chandra put out her hand to shake mine. I am very pleased to meet you, River Justice, she said. I'm always glad to make a new friend. She has really brown eyes that stare right into you. I like her a lot. I wanted to let you know that, because now I have two Indian friends, all because of one, you. I'm really glad your dad got to come home. It sounds like y'all had a real good time together. Mine won't be home until Thanksgiving, but I talked to him on the phone last night. Our conversation didn't go so great because I was telling him how the mine is getting bigger and bigger and how some people around here are going to fight back. He said that I should just accept that one person can't change things. But I don't believe this. Last year in history, we read about a student in China who stood in front of a tank when the government didn't want to listen to any young people's complaints. After that, people started to pay more attention to how people in China had lost their freedom. But when I told him that, Dad just said, yeah, and he's never been seen since either, has he? So, see, he completely missed the point. Because I think the point is that if that boy hadn't stood up for what he believed in, then people wouldn't have paid as much attention. And also, that tank driver refused to run over him, although they were killing people left and right. So that says something about him, too, don't you think? Have you ever heard this story? It happened ages ago, like in the 80s sometime, if I'm remembering right. When I told Mamma what Dad said, she just shook her head and she tried to bite her tongue and not say anything, but you know her, she couldn't stand it. So she up and said that sometimes she didn't know where he got some of his beliefs. They sure weren't from her. goes over to the cliffs every day and makes sure the dozers are not getting over on our land. The coal companies are real bad to just take whatever they want, she says. It worries me, because even though Mamma is a true firecracker of a person, she's still old, and sometimes her head swims because she has the sugar diabetes, so I worry about her being up on those cliffs. I have to stay after school every day because I have basketball practice. I do love ball. It's one thing that Daddy taught me that has been of some use to me. Sometimes, when I get real frustrated, there's nothing that feels as good as running down that basketball court and jumping up to swoosh that ball right through the hoop. It's like flying sometimes. Seems like, when I let that ball leave my fingertips, it's like my troubles are floating away with it too. Not always, but a lot of the time. Used to, I like most of the boys on the team, but lately it seems like the only one I can really talk to is my buddy Mark. I've been knowing Mark Combs since the first grade, and we've always been good friends. He's my best friend here, but you're my best friend, period. He likes to read, too, like us. He's a real brain, although you wouldn't know it to talk to him, because he only talks about playing the Wii and basketball. But when you go over to his house, he has shelf after shelf full of books, he loves all those Narnia books, and he's crazy over Harry Potter. 
Mark's mom picks us up every day after practice, and they drop me off. Mom can't come get me, of course, because her headaches are getting worse, and Mama has started working at this office downtown where they're organizing to fight back. have Mark's mom drop me off at the end of the driveway so I can walk through the woods along Lost Creek. Yesterday as I was walking through there, I saw that the creek was muddied up real bad, the way it does after a big storm when all the leaves and branches and sand along the banks has been washed in. But it hadn't rained. And as the creek ran on, I saw that it wasn't just muddy. There was some kind of orange gunk in it, too. Our creek has always been clean as a whistle, so clean that I used to drop down onto my knee and scoop up a handful of it on a real hot day. I went home and told Mamma, and she called some people to come test it. A couple evenings ago, Mamma and I were out taking our walk in the cool of the day, as she calls it. Rufus was trotting alongside us. Usually he likes to take off occasionally, then come back to check on us but this time he stayed with us the whole time like he was afraid to leave us alone. Every once in a while he would look up at me and smile, his tongue lolling out. Have you ever seen a dog that smiled? He's the best one. It was so warm that some crickets were even still hollering, and it almost sounded like springtime in the woods. The best thing about Mamaw is that she doesn't talk your head off about stupid stuff. She only talks when she has something to say. A lot of grown-ups will always ask how things are going when they don't really care, but she actually wants to hear what you're saying. Anyway, I really like that sometimes Mamma and I can just be quiet with each other, and that's what we were doing, looking at the night sky, listening to that little bunch of crickets that were still hanging on into the fall of the year. I love the way Mamma walks, easy and slow, but determined, like she has somewhere important to go. All at once, out of nowhere, Mamma turned her face to me, and she said, It may be that I have to get into some trouble over these mountains, River. I didn't know what to say, but I quit walking. I mean, it might end up that I get arrested or something, but sometimes the law arrests you to make a point. If I was to get arrested, you remember that I intended to, all right? I just nodded. I still didn't really get it. I still don't. And people might say bad things about me at school, she said. But you just tell them that I'm standing up for what I believe in. If something legal is unjust, sometimes people have to do something illegal to get attention. It's called civil disobedience. I told her if anybody ever said anything bad about her at school, I'd bust their mouth. But she didn't like that one bit. She talked real fast and loud. She said that was no way to act and that that kind of attitude was what got countries into wars they didn't belong in and caused many a good soldier to die. Then we listened to the crickets some more, quiet while we looked out at the darkening world. I guess I better go. Mamma's hollering for me to come watch Obama give his acceptance speech. Sincerely, Riverdean Justice.
P.S. Have you ever heard anything by the White Stripes? Mark made me listen to them the other day on his iPod, and I am loving them. They have this one song called Blue Orchid that I like for dancing around my room. I lock the door and bounce all over the place, even on my bed. Their music makes me feel happy all over. Silas House co-wrote Same Son Here with Neela Vaswani. The book won an E.B. White Read Aloud Honor Award. House is the author of four novels. The most recent is Eli the Good. Coming up, a man conducts an experiment on his wife. This is Unbound from WFPL. Thanks for listening to Unbound. You can find out more about the authors and music you hear in the show, and you can let us know what you think at WFPL.org. Welcome back to Unbound. Today, stories about the war at home. A man shrinks his wife and gives her a dollhouse to live in. The wife doesn't take it lying down. Here's Manuel Gonzalez with The Miniature Wife. The house took me nearly two months to complete, much longer than I had expected. But having completed the house, having added the bed and the rest of the furniture, having finished painting the rooms inside and out, I opened it up to her yesterday, only to wait to see what she would make of it. Already, less than a day later, there are signs of life inside it. The bed is unmade. There's a mess in one of the living room's pillows on the floor, a lamp left on, signs of domesticity. I can't see very well because I'm only looking through the windows. I'm afraid to open the house up, because if I unhinge the house and pull it apart, I run the risk of catching my wife and splitting her in two. Regardless, there are signs of life, of living. Soon I should be able to devise a way to return her to normal. But then again, it is such a nice house, much nicer than our normal-sized house. Is it possible that she and I could be happy there together? Once a week I could return to normal size and buy groceries, run errands, make our lives comfortable. I could even continue working, shrinking myself every night after coming home. I could sleep with my wife then. We could be together. Though it goes against my sense of ethics, true, it is so much simpler a solution, and I have so far tried just about every known process for deminiaturization that I can think of. I've brought home engorgement and enlargement solutions, a number of which I've developed myself and know for certain to be foolproof. I've made her spend four hours inside the magnifying chamber, a rather small device itself, small enough anyway, to slip into my pocket before I left the office for home. And as a last resort, I carried her out of the house and drove her to the remote piece of bad lands owned by the company, and there, uncertain as to whether she would even survive, I pushed her through the Fibonacci tunnel. Nothing has worked. I'll leave my wife a note explaining my idea to her. If we discuss it, I'm sure she'll see the benefits. I'm sure she'll see that this might, in fact, be the best thing for us. For a moment, I harbored a fantasy of what life might be like, what our life might be like if I were unable to restore my wife to her original size, if we were to live together in the dollhouse I built for her, which, as I've said before, is a very nice house, 
much nicer house. Then I spoke that fantasy out loud, and then the fantasy was ruined. What I mean to say is this ordeal has taken its toll on all of us. Today I had to fire one of my employees, Richard Paul Ware. He was not the best man, as his actions proved, but he was a very good miniaturist. He was ambitious. And though his actions are unpardonable, I cannot blame him entirely. I should have known that miniaturizing a phone for my wife would lead to, if not this, exactly something similar. But I was concerned. I'd had no word from my wife since I finished the project, and after the first two days I saw no more signs of life in the house. The bed was made, the rooms were neat and untouched. I left her notes, but they went unanswered. My questions about miniaturizing myself were ignored. I called for her softly so as not to damage her shrunken ears, but my voice did nothing but agitate the bird. The truth is, I sorely missed my wife. The construction of the dollhouse helped me manage through her absence, and there were little signs of her presence around the house. Dead flies, the dulled razors, the notes, the torn buttons. And though annoyances, they proved to me that she was still around. Since the completion of the house, I've heard nothing. Therefore, I bought a cordless phone and miniaturized it. I wasn't sure if the signal would work for such a small phone, nor did I have a means of testing the equipment, but I figured there was nothing left to lose. With a pair of tweezers, I placed the tiny phone on the coffee table of the living room of the dollhouse, where my wife could easily find it. Then three days passed without word from her. I called home once or twice a day, but the phone must not have worked, I thought. Or she has left me, even if she would not yet left the house. Or maybe she was dead. On the fourth day, I came to my desk from a meeting and found a message on my phone. Come home for lunch, dear. I've missed you so. Until that moment, I hadn't realized just how much I had missed the sound of her voice, full and loud and loving. Why hadn't I thought of the phone before? There was nothing small about her over the phone line. I did not hear the voice of my shrunken wife, but rather the voice of the woman I loved. The woman whose touch I missed, the sound of it brought tears to my eyes. I felt faint. I wanted to leave immediately, drive home, meet my wife, tell her how much I loved her. I grabbed my jacket and was about to leave when one of my technicians came in with a problem, an accident in the lab, which in the end took me until lunchtime to correct. As soon as I could, though, I sped home, my heart in my throat. Only in hindsight did I find it odd that the door was unlocked. I expected to see her waiting for me on the kitchen counter or on the coffee table. I stepped gingerly through the house, cups around my ears so I might hear her. And then I heard a noise from the upstairs bedroom where I kept her dollhouse. Of course, I thought, the dollhouse. How silly of me to have forgotten. I took the stairs three and four at a time, reckless and youthful in my haste. I burst through the bedroom door and threw the house open, completely forgetting in my excitement that I might harm my wife, might split her in two. And there she was, in the dollhouse, in the bedroom, on our bed. And there, 
On the floor next to the bed, inexpertly covering himself with a pillow, was a cowering and miniature Richard Paul Ware. My wife smiled at me and then leaned over to him, tousled his hair, and gave him a peck on the forehead. Sleeping with my wife aside, Ware had broken company policy. Not only did he use his knowledge of miniaturization outside of the workplace, he did so on himself. Granted, I've made my own innumerable missteps, but surely anyone can see the difference between miniaturizing yourself so you can step out of the office for a nice go-around with your office mate's miniaturized wife and stealing engorgement solutions and deminiaturizing machinery and using office resources to miniaturize beds and whatnot in order to make your accidentally miniaturized, temporary miniaturized existence more comfortable. But more important even than that... He knew about my own situation. Such knowledge could find its way back to the office, could spread among my employees, could result in my termination, an investigation, police reports, legal action. So what else could I do but cover him in honey and seed and then feed him to the bird? A conflict has arisen between my wife and me. I destroyed the phone, lucky that my wife had not called the police, or worse yet, my supervisor, had only called Ware, whom she'd met briefly at the last company picnic. Once the phone was destroyed, I locked my wife inside the dollhouse and covered it with a drop cloth. Live in darkness, I yelled. See how you like that? I came home to find the dollhouse burnt to the ground. Nothing else in our house had been damaged aside from the tabletop scorched by the fire. I don't know how she managed to free herself from the dollhouse. I'd nailed it shut and covered the windows with squares of cardboard that I glued and then duct taped to the outside of the house, had weighted down the drop cloth, had made it impossible to escape from, nor do I know how she controlled the fire such that the house itself burned but nothing else. Yet there it is, the house, and everything inside of it gone. I am not unprepared for this. To be honest, this is not unexpected. I am the kind of man who thinks through all possible courses of events, horrifying or not, I did at one point imagine this might come to pass, or if not this exactly, something like this. If she can burn down the dollhouse, even as it sits inside our real house, then she is capable of almost anything. For this reason, I wear headphones and swimming goggles to sleep. I tie down the sheets, layer the bed three and four blankets thick. And far too many nights have I woken up only just in time to see the small figure of her jump from the top of our mattress and scurry beneath the bedroom door and into the hallway. Taking these precautions allows me to sleep peacefully. But when I wake in the morning, it is to the sickening smell of a dead cockroach, speared through its abdomen by a tiny metal stewer, the tip of which has been shoved firmly into the soft wood of our nightstand. She set the whole thing on fire, hence the smell. This is, unmistakably, an act of war. In response, I am starving the bird. I haven't fed him since I fired where? Tonight. Before I go to sleep, I will set him free in the house. 
This morning I woke to find the bird dead on my side of the bed, covered so that he appeared to be taking a nap. Either she guessed my next move or she'd been planning this move all along. How did she kill him? How did she manage to move him? He's well over three times her size and settle him on my pillow? How did she loosen the sheets, and when she did, why did she not do more to me? Questions I cannot answer, though I am not without my own next move. On my way home, I will stop by our friend's house and retrieve our cat. Not just the cat. Now we also have a number of spiders and cockroaches that I set free to wander through the house. I like to picture my wife as Jason, or one of his Argonauts, a sword in hand fighting large and mystical beasts, hordes of skeletons giant cats. I have furthermore flooded the bedroom. The bed now sits on stilts. I have waiters sitting just outside the bedroom door for when I come home and want to go to bed. The water is about a foot and a half deep. It's an unnecessary precaution. The cat will find my wife eventually if he hasn't done so already, but one can never be too careful. Now that the room is flooded, I've stopped wearing my goggles and headphones. I sleep some nights without covers at all, and when I dream, I dream of the cat charging down on my wife. He has no front claws, but he has teeth. He has plenty of teeth. I've also developed the habit of checking the house for spider webs and checking those webs for wife-shaped mummies. I've only found a fly or two. I scour the kitchen and the living room for the remains of my wife, but again, nothing. Jason and the Argonauts. It is almost as if by making the comparison in my head I have brought this all upon myself. Now I am blind in my left eye and the cat is drowned floating next to the bed. She loved that cat. It all happened while I slept, of course, though the cat must have been dead before it was drowned. Surely the sounds she would have made while struggling to drown her cat would have woken me. I knew that she was still in the room. She must have been. She was hidden somewhere. Her boat, how did she learn to make a boat? Safely anchored next to the bed. There was a good deal of pain after she stabbed me through, but partly I was acting as I writhed about the bed and tossed about the room, my hand cupped over my eye. While one eye bled, the other searched the room for signs of her. I stumbled from the bed to the dresser to the closet, looking for threads, tiny ropes, anything she might have used to cross over the water. Nothing. She must have swum for it in those first moments when I was distracted by the pain. The waves thrown about by my stamping feet might have carried her even faster to the water's edge. Or perhaps she is even cleverer than that. Perhaps she is still in her boat or just beneath it, bobbing just under the surface of the water, a small tube feeding her air. With a quick swipe of my hand, I smash her ship, slam it underwater and into the bedroom floor, smash at it again and again and again until my hand is sore and bruised. When I stop, the pieces of the boat float to the surface, but sadly my wife is not among them. Manuel Gonzalez is the author of The Miniature Wife and Other Stories. 
He's the executive director of the Austin Bat Cave, a nonprofit writing center for kids and teens in Austin, Texas. Unbound is made possible in part by the Bachelor's and Master's Writing Programs at Spalding University. The show is a production of WFPL, edited by me, Aaron Keene, and Gabe Bullard, with assistance from Joe Durso. Music for this episode was provided by Nerves Jr. and Will Oldham. Our theme song is Patrons of the Arts by Brother Stephen. For more information, visit WFPL.org.